0: Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks, and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense.
1: Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we'll be discussing all things related to firearms, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. Uh, We've got a couple of really great guests, and I'm looking forward to the show. I'm joined here by my co-host, Zev, the Wolf Nadler, who is the owner and operator of Firearms Concierge, and thebestdronage.com.
0: Thank you, Kelly. I'm glad to be here. And I just want to give a quick shout out to our good friend, Len Backus, at longrangehunting.com. For all your long-range hunting and shooting needs, check out his website, longrangehunting.com.
1: Our first guest is uh, really exciting for me. Um, he's been kind of a friend of the family and a friend of my father's. I, I, I'm always really excited about talking to somebody who knew my father and and had a relationship with him because you know it's a way to to know that he's still here and he hasn't been forgotten so um, without much ado I'm going to introduce Mark Lonsdale hey Mark thanks for joining us on the show hey thank you Kelly happy to be here why don't you tell us a little bit about your background where you grew up um, how you got to be where you are today and and throw in a little about your relationship with my dad
2: Wow, that's a long story.
1: Uh,
2: basically, uh, I grew up in New Zealand. I came to the United States in uh, 1977 for deep-sea diving school, and I was actually still in the Army at the time. Um, but uh, ended up getting into deep-sea diving, where I was working two months on, two months off. So on the two months off, I was able to get into competitive shooting. And it was initially the, the IPSC-style shooting here in the U.S., um, made the top 10 in the U.S. by 1980, 1981, uh, took second place in the first SOF three-gun match, was ranked number six in the U.S. Uh, in the 1982 Nationals. Um, and this is when you know, Bill Wilson, Robbie Latham, Brian Enos, uh, John Pride, these guys were, were all on their, their ascending arc. Um, but... Uh, I had been a long-range rifle shooter back in New Zealand, uh, shot competitively there, um, was top shot in my intake in the uh, Army and Infantry, so uh, was asked to run a a sniper school for one of the uh, police departments back in about 82, 81, 82, and uh, at that time I was was using literally an out-of-the-box Ruger 77 with a loophole scope on it, but perfectly adequate, it was a very accurate rifle. Uh, one of the snipers turned up with a, uh, a custom Macmillan rifle and I was very impressed with it. So got a hold of Gale, and, uh, Gale built me my first custom sniper rifle. It was on the, uh, M40 stock with the, uh, with a Douglas air gauge barrel. And we actually built it on a Seiko action at that time. So that's how it all started back in 82.
1: I want to take just a second to explain to our listeners that, yes, it, he is talking about the M40A1 stock that that we designed for the Marine Corps, and yes, the M40A1 was on a Remington, and yes, we did put Seiko actions into that stock. If you look in our catalog today... That stock is listed as our general purpose hunting stock. And the reason that we called it that is because it was the only one we had at the time. And we put every action in it, including Mausers. And and because it was the only one we had, we did a lot of custom inletting and uh, uh, custom tang work and a lot of stuff that uh, we had to do simply because it was the only one we had. So, yeah, Mark was telling the truth. The first gun my dad built him was on a Seiko in the M40A1 stock. So that's how that gets put together. Um, yeah. You know, I, I want to step back just a second. So you were, you were military in New Zealand. And when you came to the U.S., you were, you were still in the New Zealand military? Yes, I was, I was,
2: I was still technically on board. But, um, they had an old volunteer army at that time. You could literally get out on 24 hours notice. And what happened when I started doing really well in shooting here, um, I, I became in demand. I mean, federal agencies, police departments, military units. Um, remember, this was the transition from, from isosceles shooting to the Weaver stance. You know, at that time, there was only two shooting schools. That was uh, Jeff Cooper's Gunsight site and uh, Ray Chapman's Academy in Missouri. But neither of them were catering to the professional shooter. None of them addressed, like, the offensive use of the handgun, shotguns, or rifles. Uh, it was all defensive pistol. So I started in basically in 82. I started the Specialized Tactical Training Unit, STTU. Um, under the understanding, they said, it's basically if you build it, they will come. And, and I built the school and um, just had a lot of contracts from then onwards.
1: One of the things I find really interesting, and most people don't know, uh, because I've been around it, I understand how the military reaches out to to gain knowledge in any area they can. Uh, We have another guest, uh, Todd Hodnett, that's scheduled for a later show, who... It had never been in the military but is in such demand now that they're scheduling classes a year out teaching military how to, you know, shoot long distance. So when you have a skill and it's something that the especially special forces and stuff, I know that 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 was a lot of the people that you work with, um, when they find out that you have a skill that they want to learn – they're willing to come and have you teach them and have people teach them something that they want to learn. So I think that's really cool that they're not limited to what they can learn from within the particular branch of the service that they're in.
2: Yeah, they actually prefer going off base to train simply because, for example, I ran a lot of training at Camp Pendleton. But if you saw the hoops and the, and the administrative and the logistics that so we had to jump through, to be able to utilize, even though I was a certified Marine Corps range master, range safety officer, you know, you had to book a range 90 days out. You had to get your ammo from the ammo supply points. You had to have range safety offices, communication. You had to have an emergency evacuation plan. So they actually preferred to come to our facilities because they didn't have to deal with all that. They could literally come in, saddle up, shoot all day. um <clears throat> You know, the the even something as simple as you know storage of ammunition is, is a big problem when you're running training on a military facility. So it's, as long, it's, uh,
1: yeah. And as long as the facility was somewhere near uh, a pub, for after they got off the range, they were happy, right? <laughs> Absolutely,
2: yeah. No, there was there was a lot of recreational shooting that went on, and uh, and a lot of partying.
1: I. You, you talked a little bit about how you started and, and the difference between what was being taught and what you were teaching. Can you be a little more specific about those first classes when you started, what you did differently than what was being offered out there? I think the the, the key
2: jump that was happening back in the late 70s and early 80s was that transition from target shooting to combat shooting. Um, you know, the 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 fundamental principles of, Everyone knows the five fundamental principles of target shooting, of stance, grip, breathing, um, side alignment, trigger control. Well, then you throw that into the, into the combat realm, and you don't have a lot of choice over your stance. Balance becomes more important. Um, you don't get the opportunity to do a surprise break on the trigger. You need to learn how to compress that trigger squeeze. You need to be able to shoot in low-light conditions, multiple targets, hostage scenarios. So I think it was... As soon as we started applying practical application to, to the shooting sports, the police and military just realized it right away. It, the, the question was, why aren't we doing that on our own ranges? Why aren't our range masters teaching us that? And the problem was that their range masters were the dinosaurs who came from the world of ready on the right, ready on the left, load one round, fire one round, make safe, show clear. And it's just it's a very ineffective, inefficient way to train.
1: You've uh, you've done a lot of things. Um, Did did you ever develop your own facility?
2: Uh, No, I've always used um, other facilities. It's I I I developed a shooting club where I had pretty much unlimited use of the facility for quite some time. But um, once we got to to once other schools started starting up and other instructors started building their facilities. You know, obviously, like John Shaw's facility in, in uh, the Miss facility was one of the big competitors. Uh, Plaxco had a facility. Um, to be competitive, what we found was that it was less expensive for them to bring one or two instructors to them or to a local facility than it was to bring 15 or 20 operators to us. So it was basically, our, our marketing was built around the cost-saving of a mobile training team. So by about... 1984, 1985, pretty much everything I was doing was working as a mobile training team. I was able to get my federal law enforcement firearms credentials. I was able to get military range master, range safety officer credentials. So I could actually use their facilities, and it was just a matter of getting in there early and getting some flexibility with range control.
1: Did you ever uh, include civilians in any of the training that you did?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that was, that was the bread and butter. That's what paid the bills when we were getting started up. We ran a, uh, a basic pistol class every Saturday, uh, at one, at a country club facility. We ran an a intermediate pistol second Saturday, advanced pistol third Saturday and a shotgun on the fourth or night shoot. And the way we marketed that was just simply, we had flyers printed up and we went to every gun shop, uh, in a 60 mile radius and said, uh, you know, every time you sell a handgun, You got an obligation to get that person some training. I mean, there was no other training at that time. There there weren't all these indoor ranges. There weren't 101 firearms instructors. There was no aggressive NRA firearms instructor program. So uh, it was back in the early 80s. This was quite unique.
0: Mark Zev here. In in going back and forth with you on email, one of the items that I wanted to talk about with you uh, was the evolution of law enforcement sniper training and equipment and designated marksman patrol rifle training. And that really piques my interest because uh, on the surface, it looks like, you know, one can take a patrol rifle, uh, perhaps a 16 or 18 inch uh, AR and become a designated defensive marksman with that. Am I reading that correctly? And if I am, can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, if we're talking about the law enforcement realm, yes. I mean, basically, you know, with the in the last ten years, I mean, with the influx in these active shooters and primarily active shooters, but also acts of terrorism, um, more and more agencies are going to equipping their offices with the AR-15 platforms or something similar. Um, back in the early '80s, mid '80s, you know, the, the Heckler and Koch MP5 submachine gun was was the hot setup, but p- people pretty quickly realized that. That at, 100 yards, 200 yards, you were outgunned. That, that was still just a nine millimeter round. So the ARs, basically the M4 platform started replacing all of the submachine guns with the SWAT teams. And then once we started getting these active shooter scenarios, um, it went to the patrol offices. Cause so if you can imagine, if you've got an active shooter in a school or a hospital, uh, any industrial facility, you're looking at corridors that are 100 to 150 yards, 150 feet long. It's not unusual to have to make that 50-yard that shot um, in that type of scenario. So that's where the rifle came into its, its own. Plus, you were able to add the light mounts. You were able to add the optical sights. Um, it's far easier to teach someone to shoot a rifle than to shoot a handgun. You know, rifles actually very they, they have a natural point characteristic to them. And then when you add the light and the optical sight, um, it's, it's pretty easy. So, yeah, there has, it, 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 that's the biggest move. I'm, right now I'm training a team. Uh, for one of the local police departments. Um, the minimum state training down here is 16 hours, but I make the guys go through 24 hours. I don't think 16 hours training is enough to make someone competent under stressful situations.
1: Uh, you left out something when you were talking about your your history. Um, at one time, you were an internationally ranked judo competitor. Talk about that a little bit and then kind of... Let our listeners know how you feel that has basically given you a platform for what you do uh, that gives you an edge.
2: I mean, martial arts is probably the best thing. I mean, well-run martial arts is probably the best thing you can do for any child in their early development because it teaches discipline and kind of a can-do attitude. I mean, the the fundamental principle is uh, seven times down eight times up it's like you just always keep getting back up you keep you know competing for that next belt for that next trophy but it's, it's really about self-improvement so i started judo when i was 11 i mean i had to beg my parents to enroll me at a local ymca type club um but judo i mean i got my black belt by the time i was 16 i was national champion uh competed in three world championships uh when i was 18 i got a sports scholarship to france for a year and a half to compete with with one of the top teams in France, so it it really opened a lot of doors for me. But the key thing is it, it it taught me that you can do anything you want. You just have to put in the 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 time, the study, the energy, the hard work. There is no shortcut. And it's the same with shooting. When I started shooting, when I started winning competitions, the club members were saying, "Well, you're cheating because you practice all the time." Well, yeah, it's like I could at that time I could practice for a week. And then shoot a match on the weekend. Um, they didn't have that opportunity. They had to go to work all week and then they came and shot the matches and didn't do too well. But when, when you're able to do focused training for prolonged periods of time uh, on a frequent basis, then it pays. It's the same. I mean, it's the same in life. It's the same in work. It's the same in learning a trade. Um, but basically, I took that, that martial arts ethos and applied it to my shooting training in the early years.
1: That statement that you made sounded like a liberal statement to me. Uh, and if you look at the way that our young kids are, are growing up now, when they feel like somebody who's willing to put hard work in and work to to excel at something is an unfair advantage, uh, there's something wrong with the way we think these days. Yeah,
2: but I mean, you see it in the martial arts club. I mean, there are clubs that will sell you 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 buy the black belt program. You don't go in there and say I'm going to train for four years and earn a black belt. You pay ahead of time and you're you're on that track. I mean, we'll have parents come in and say, you know, listen, I, I you know, I want to I want to buy my kid's next belt. You know, the next promotion. It's, it's all about the easy button. It's all about just turning up. And we explain to them it doesn't work that way. They've got to work for it.
1: When I asked about how your martial arts training fit into your firearms training, I was thinking more on a physical level. I know that the mindset and when you train to be at that international level where you've become a a national champion and, you know, world competitor, you've got to have a mindset that won't let you quit because I'm sure there were many times when you felt like, man, I wonder if this is all worth it. But what I was really talking about is, you know, people don't realize anything that you do with a firearms takes a level of athleticism. And I think and the people that I've seen who are some of the better shooters in the world are really top-notch athletes in just about any endeavor they want to get involved in.
2: Yes. I mean, there's there's no question that, that if you want to be in that top, top one percentile of competitive shooters in the U.S., whether it's three-gun Ipsick pistol, IPSC rifle, um, even sporting clays. I mean, you've you've got to have a high level of physical conditioning. But the key things, I I think what, what gave me the edge in competition in shooting was the mental aspect, was that I'm not affected by stress. I'd fought at the world level in judo. So when I went to a shooting competition, I could see people were really nervous. And to me, it was just another day at the range. If you can get that into your mind that, when you get down behind the rifle or get behind the pistol that it's just another day at the range and all that stress goes away now, i'll give you a good example i was training in france for the the french international Ipsi championship so it was a, a big tournament in 85 so i went to a local club a week ahead of time and i was training with the french guys and the french guys were beating me on just about every stage in terms of time but not on accuracy they were faster than me but on match day they fell apart it's they, they allowed the match to get to them, the stress to get to them. And basically, I, show, I shoot better scores in matches than I do in practice, simply because I think it's the, the martial arts has taught me to control the nerves and the anticipation um, that go along with high-level competition.
0: Mark, Zev here again. You know, when you sent in some of the uh, profile pictures that I was going to use for your um for your profile picture on the uh, radio show, the one that I really liked was the one where you were with a couple of other gentlemen in, I believe, Iraq, and um, it kind of spoke to your international um, experience, both in judo and then um, also there in in using that towards developing the relationships you needed for intel. Um, can you speak a little bit about you know how that worked for you and how that made you more successful?
2: Well, when I started the Specialized Tactical Training Unit, um, what we found was was the instructors that I hired, they were all former military, former law enforcement, former federal federal agents. Um, They were in big demand for executive security contracts. So they would alternate between, if, if we weren't running any programs at the time, we would basically be doing international security work. So we'd run operations in about, 45 plus countries, um, armed security operations. Uh, so this gave us this when when 9/11 happened um, we had a level of international experience that a lot of people didn't have. you know keep in mind that, that pre 911, most of our tier one operators when you talk about like seal Team 6 and Delta and and Marine Force Recon, these guys didn't hadn't had a lot of combat experience. you know Gulf War one was very short, Grenada was short. Panama was short. So it wasn't until um, Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom came along that these guys really got a chance to practice their, practice their trade. And now, I mean, now we have a slew of, of highly trained, highly experienced operators um, running schools and teaching and, and running security operations. But prior to 9-11, that didn't happen. I mean, I was actually with Marine Force Recon at Mountain Warfare, um, when 9-11 happened, and, you know, literally within days, we went into pre-deployment training mode for Afghanistan. And at that time, I mean, this is, I mean, we're talking about days after 9-11, and when as soon as soon they said Osama bin Laden Afghanistan, um, I think I was the only one that had comprehensive PowerPoints on Afghanistan from the mid-'80s, from the, the time the Soviet occupation. But we had terrain, weather, local custom culture. So we went right into that, that pre-deployment training mode. And then that rolled from Force Recon into Air Force Power Rescue because they couldn't put any troops on the ground until power rescue personnel were, were in place in uh, Tajikistan and Pakistan. Um, so, yeah, the, the international component has, has definitely been a, a major plus for us.
1: I think you brought up a point that most people don't realize because of our relationship with uh, the Navy SEALs and and particularly with SEAL Team 6 from its inception, uh, you know, through the change to DevGrew. We we saw a bunch of guys, and because we dealt almost exclusively with the snipers in, in that team, we saw a bunch of guys come in, do a lot of training all over the world, spend a lot of time working on their craft, but never getting an opportunity to really use it. And if they did, it was just little snippets. And the one thing I found interesting is it, during Grenada, if you remember back, uh, four of, of the SEAL Team 6 guys... Drowned. They did a, a halo and landed in the water, and, and they just, yep. it was so dark they couldn't see the water, and their chutes came in on top of them, and they ended up drowning. And then when they got on land, it was really messed up. I mean, it was yeah. really messed up. And so when they got back, when that was all over, four guys I know personally immediately got out. They gave them the option, and they, they got out of the teams. They most of them went back in after about six months of doing nothing. They found out that they would really rather be in than not. But it really woke them up to about what, what it was that they had volunteered for and what they were training for. Uh, my son was at, at Bud's when 2001 happened. And that was probably the best thing for them because they knew that they were going to see some action soon. Um, you know the, they deployed. I think it was by the time they their team got deployed, it was 2000, late 2003. So the, even though you know he was in Buds during 9/11, I mean, uh, yeah, um, they knew at some point they were going to get deployed and g- get to do what they were trained to do. Yeah,
2: I mean it's it's the peacetime military. Let's let's say from 1980 to 2001. You know, there simply just wasn't a lot of operational opportunity. I mean, you got to do some peacekeeping, you know, there was the Bosnia, the Kosovos type stuff. Um and you know, some of the Marine snipers got some good experience there. There was the um going after the the uh what do they call it? The Pifwicks in, in uh Kosovo, the guys that had committed war crimes. You know, the, the SEALs got to go in and do some of those operations. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it wasn't until 9-11 came along and basically George Bush said, you know, we're taking the gloves off. We're going after these guys that uh, everyone knew that it was game on. And this was the Super Bowl.
1: I've got a funny story to, to talk about. My son, you know, his mom was really worried when uh, he was deployed. Um, I was never really worried because my thought was always the best way to survive a war is to be the best prepared. And I knew absolutely without a doubt, there was nobody better prepared than his team. So I wasn't that worried, but uh, about, you know, after he had been there about a month, he said, mom, don't worry. These guys are cowards. They're afraid of us. He said, but you know, If I was after me, I'd be afraid of me too. (laughs) 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 And so that made her feel better. I laughed at it. I thought it was really cool. Um, You know, I posted a, an email that you sent to me in regards to a stock that you put on a gun, and um, I just made the comment that uh, people ought to listen to what you say because you know what you're talking about. I I hope they listen to the radio show or get an opportunity to, to hear this um, and, and understand what I meant when I said that. Uh, not only are you an international judo competitor, have taught military and uh, government people from all over, you've got a master's in criminology with a focus on criminal components of insurgency and terrorism. That's a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> that's that's really impressive to me because you did that because you wanted to. I mean, there was, uh, I'm assuming that the the whole premise for you going back to school and getting a master's was to get the knowledge, not to try to impress anybody with a master's degree. Well, I I deployed
2: to Iraq and Afghanistan every year from, you know, like literally by November of 2001, after 9-11, two months after 9-11. I mean, I was into the tribal districts of Peshawar, of uh, western Pakistan, just looking, just trying to get a feel for the terrain and the people and the culture so that I could come back and teach that to our guys. Um, And like I said, I, I was in Iraq and Afghanistan every year up until 2007, 2008. But by two thousand six I realized that, that we were going about this all wrong. I mean the level of corruption in the Afghan government was just was just endemic. The the same with the Iraqis. The the the, the military and police were extremely low grade personnel. I mean we were getting mass desertions from the police and military academies. They wouldn't deploy to areas outside of their own tribal district. Um They would, you would issue them full equipment and they would go home on leave and come back with no equipment, including their rifle. And, you know, where's your gear? They, they knew the Americans would simply buy them new equipment. So they were selling it to basically make up the shortfall in their, in their paychecks. Their own offices were stealing half their paychecks. So it's, it's, I got very interested in, in the criminal components of insurgency, how, basically, how the insurgents, terrorists finance themselves through criminal enterprise. And, you know, did this open opportunities to go out, if we, if we couldn't beat them on the military level, could we beat them on the criminal level? And I'd done this similar research in Kosovo back in 99 and 2000 with the support of the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically in, in 2008, I went to the uh, U.S. Army War College and said, would you support my research? I need to go to basically every regional command in Afghanistan. I need to get out to the borders. I need to talk to the smugglers. I need to talk to the good guys, the bad guys, the Afghan military, the Afghan police. Um, So they facilitated that. I had travel orders that allowed me to go anywhere and everywhere in Afghanistan. Um, Very well supported. And the end result was a 180-page paper on the uh, counterinsurgency and the criminal components of insurgency.
3: And, hey,
1: Mark, uh, I really want to hear more about that. And, and there is so much more I want to talk to you about. We haven't even touched on the fact that you're an author with many books. Uh, will you you would promise me you'll come back on the show so we can talk more? Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Okay.
3: Happy
1: to help out. Great. Sorry we're out of time. Uh, I want to ask our uh, listeners to stick with us through this next commercial break. I want to thank Mark for being with us. What a great guy. And uh, uh, thanks for being here. Okay. Thank you, Kelly. Okay. Uh, we'll be right back.
3: For over 40 years, McMillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks, From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, McMillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the McMillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, Call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at MacMillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacMillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacMillanUSA.com.
0: You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show
1: welcome back to taking stock with Kelly McMillan thanks for sticking with us uh, really enjoyed mark uh, such a great guy um, definitely re- ran out of time, and there's so much more I wanted to talk to him about. We'll have him back on another show. Uh, our next guest has been a longtime friend of mine, such a great guy, one of the the few guys in this industry that I've met over the last 40 years that, that I can say um, truly exemplifies the kind of person I would really aspire to be. Um, really nice uh, works very hard at what he does very personable of course all those things are involved in in his uh, you know line of work y- you can't be successful at what he does if you're not a nice guy and people don't like you so i think that all goes hand in hand which means that he was pretty smart in picking a, a profession that he could actually excel in his name is gordy white he's the owner of gordy white worldwide hunting and is also involved in expedition adventures uh gordy thanks for being on the show
4: hey kelly thanks for having me i appreciate it
1: how's your daughter
4: oh she's doing good she's doing great uh she's got a birthday coming up next week and she's going into the fifth grade
1: at oh, the end of summer break. oh she's growing up fast big time yeah yeah but you're not getting any older
4: no, no, not at all, not at all, <laughs> thanks, thanks for reminding me
1: Well, uh, let's let our listeners know a little bit about Gordy White, tell us about uh, you know where you grew up, uh, how you got into hunting and, and uh, how you got to where you are today
4: Okay, alright, I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec and uh, I don't know how I got into hunting, it was just there, I just grew up with it, my father was a hunter, my grandfather was and it just we always had guns around in the house and i just hunted and fished a lot and you know, my dad took me out on weekends and we we spent fall holidays hunting rough grouse and and you know snowshoe hare and deer we fished for a lot of bass and just spent a lot of time in uh in the wilderness of Quebec and uh, that's just really how i started and i just was passionate about it from a very young age, you know, and when the time I could read and probably before I could read, I was just grabbing magazines and, you know, looking at pictures and learning about what I could and, and it just took off from there. I just, it just never let go.
1: It's funny. You've lived in the hill country of Texas as long as I've known you, which has been quite a while, but you still have a hint of that uh, Canadian (laughs) accent.
4: Yeah, I know. When I moved to Georgia, I married. I married an East Texan, and I moved to Georgia. And after about six months of being married, uh, most of it, most of it left. The Canadian accent left. I, people comment that I still have a touch of it, so I got to keep a little bit of it, I suppose.
0: Zeb here, Gordy. Did, did hey, you come Zev. from a French Canadian uh, family? Did you actually grow up speaking a bit of French? Or
4: oh yeah, I'm, I'm French. Yeah, I'm, uh, my mother, my mother is French. My my father was totally bilingual, and so I grew up. I grew up. I suppose I consider myself French-Canadian.
0: Yes, right, sir. right. So when I heard the accent, I was thinking what I heard uh, when I had some French uh, folk come and, and do some shooting uh, about a month ago. Uh, they picked up an AR-15 and, and they yelled, Vive la Quebec libre.
4: And I was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I lived through, I was young, but I lived through some a lot of those days, way back yeah.
0: when. I also was, uh, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that opens up a book and looks for the pictures right away and Kelly has a copy of your book on the, on the desk here and I went Uh right to the page that had Two phenomenal pictures, uh, one on the left side and one on the right side of your dad and of your granddad, uh, back in the day by the uh, by the lake house. And I, I just can't imagine a better great a better way of growing up as a young man and, and learning the things you learned that that got you on the path you're on today. So kudos to them.
4: Well, yeah, they they um yeah, they're fantastic. I can't. I can't uh, imagine another you know another upbringing uh, my dad was just he's just a wonderful father and taught me to shoot from a year, very young age and we just spent a lot of time together in the woods and my grandfather was already very old when I was when I was growing up and able to shoot and fish but he still you know I commented I wrote in the book that the last time I fished with my grandfather he was 93 and he was he was paddling the canoe so How do you was, like that? Yeah. Yeah. They're both awesome. Uh, So I'm actually, I haven't seen the lake uh, in a very, very long time since my teens. and I'm actually going to see it uh, in about a month. So it'll be the first time in probably 30 years or more that I haven't seen the lake where I grew up fishing and doing a lot of hunting
1: enjoy that trip. Uh, we were just talking to some people on a conference call earlier, and they were saying that that all of the lakes, and I think they were talking specifically about the Great Lakes, uh, their elevations are so high because of some program that Obama instituted to uh, have more fisheries in the rivers, so they wanted to keep the streams and rivers higher, so they're not letting any of the water out of the, the lake. so they're... They're really causing problems for the communities around the lake. I hope that lake that you're in hasn't had that same kind of problem.
4: No, I don't I don't think so. I think it'll be I think it'll be okay. It'll be full and, and healthy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the thing about your accent that gets me is the out and about. <laughs> yeah, that's still I, Canadian. I, can't,
4: I I can't let it go. It just that's <laughs> That's the last of it, I believe. I'm, I'm told repeatedly that uh, I guess it's going to go with me. So uh, I've worked at it, but I can't. I can't. Uh, I guess I wasn't born in Texas, so I can't have it all. So I'm going to have to keep uh, that that part of my accent.
1: I think I've only heard you say "hey" one time.
4: <laughs> I, dropped, I dropped that a long time ago. I probably just threw that in just to just to just to show you that I do have some Canadian roots.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, now your brother still lives in Canada, right?
4: Yes, he does. He he lives in Alberta, and uh, he's an outfitter in northern Alberta in the Grand Prairie area. He hunts for really big whitetails and mule deer, elk, moose. Uh, Yeah, he's still still very active. He does a really good job. He's my brother's my best friend, and he's an exceptional hunter.
1: Okay, well, let's use this opportunity to plug him. Uh, If people (laughs) wanted to go hunt with him, how would they get in touch with him? Or can they book a hunt with him through you?
4: Oh, yeah, I take care of a lot of his bookings, you know, for, for a long time now. But his, his, his outfit is called Legend Outfitting. You just, uh, legendoutfitting.com, his name's Mike White. He's a great guy, and uh, he runs a very, you know, private, small operation, but high quality, and he takes really good care of his guys. He's got tremendous repeat business, and it's just, northern Alberta's a land of really big deer, uh, mule deer and whitetail both. So he uh, no, he does an excellent job. Mike's,
1: Mike's superb. Awesome, and I can see why you would represent him because I know from experience that's the kind of people that you look for for your clients to to have that kind of experience.
4: Absolutely, you know, there's there's so much hunting around the world, and there's many, there's lots of outfitters. they're great guides and, and outfitters throughout. There's no reason. This is a, one thing I do talk to some people about. There's enough really good people out there to stay away from the guys that really don't have the experience or the professionalism. Uh, so yeah, Mike is at the top of the heap at, you know, along with so many that I work with, you know, closely in, um, you know, South America, Africa, you know, in the South Pacific throughout North America. Uh, there's some really, I've got wonderful partners and that's what I, how I consider them. They're, they're, they're partners of mine and they just do such a good job for my friends and clients and hunters. And so there's, there's no reason not to, there's, there's so many good opportunities still today with, with great guides and outfitters, there's no reason not to use them
1: at all. We kind of skipped over some of the stuff that I think is important, and I want you to go back and talk about it. Um, sure. we, we didn't give you an opportunity to talk about uh, uh, Gordy White Worldwide Hunting. Uh, explain mm-hmm. what you do and, and how you go about uh, servicing your clients.
4: Well, my, my business is a, is a consulting uh, agency business. I represent outfitters from around the world, uh, big game and wing shooting. And so, what I do is I just uh, I, I, I just have a fantastic network of guys and, and people. Contact me, my 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 clientele, my friends, uh, hunters. I set up you know custom travel for them around the world and, and a lot of touring too and photographic safaris. It's still doing a lot of canyon. Um, South Africa and you know throughout, throughout sub-Saharan Africa. So what I do is I, I arrange uh, sporting travel um, like I said all over the world and uh, I just work with excellent people so people can call me and I, I, I work on their trips from start to finish every detail.
1: Now I know you got into that business when you um, you met a guy uh, uh, colonel Dennis barons and and work with uh, expedition adventures that's his business and um, he, he does basically the same thing I know he's a retired colonel so is his wife uh, and they've I think the last time I talked to him he said he had done 37 tours to Africa maybe I maybe I'm way off I thought that what he what he said though.
4: Yeah, he's, he's, he's knocking on 80, about 80, 80 safaris total, but I think he's going to be, this year it'll be his 41st Kenyan safari. So we met, uh, yeah, pretty amazing, amazing um, amount of travel to Africa and everywhere around the world, but we met in 1995 in Zimbabwe. I was working in Zimbabwe and he walked into camp with his friends and uh, we struck a, a friendship and we had a great safari and, you know, years later... Uh, he asked me to join him in, in his business, Expedition Adventures, and work with his network of, of friends and hunters. And uh, here we are, you know, 10 years later, still going strong. He's wonderful. He and his wife, Lorette are, are absolutely wonderful friends and, and, and partners.
1: Uh, I agree with you 100%. The first time I met them, they attended a dinner that I hosted for uh, the NRA when the NRA convention was here in town, and they came to my house. Uh, both uh, retired Air Force colonels, which is, I think, interesting. I'm not sure that that there's a, another couple that can, you know, say that. But b- wonderful people, kind, uh, really really thoughtful people and I know I've been around some officers that weren't that way but they they're both terrific people
4: oh yeah I've, I've, I can't say enough about about uh, the colonel and, and and Colonel Loretta they're just superb and they are they've been around the world so many times so much experience. Uh, just superb and uh, a true pleasure to travel with when we, you know when we do take trips together abroad you yeah know, the the colonel the colonel i still i still can't shoot anywhere near as good as a colonel and he's he uh He's quite a bit older than I am, and he he can't stop. He's constantly on the go. Today he leaves for Montana for a fishing trip, so he's he's always on the go.
0: Now, Gordy, it would appear to me that that your relationship with colonels doesn't stop there. When we were talking earlier today, you mentioned that uh, Colonel Boddington and you uh, have a, a nice relationship, so much so that I believe he is uh, helping you with your book. Which my understanding was that it was really written for friends and family, uh, but that he really enjoyed it so much. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, I, actually, Craig is is you know really partly responsible for the reason the reason why I wrote the book. When we were you know, in Mozambique, along with you, Kelly, when we were on our trip in 2012. Craig had told me that I needed to do something with my field notes. You know, I, I've, since I was a teenager, I wrote field notes. And he told me, you know, you need to do something. So I, I decided to do something, and, and I wrote a book. And, um, you know, sometime back when I was wrapping up the book, I, my editor had said, if you could get some testimonials, a couple, uh, that would be fantastic. And I, I went to Craig, I asked him for two or three lines, and he wrote me a, a beautiful paragraph that uh, that humbled me uh, tremendously, and so just recently he he asked me if if I would if he could sell my book on his website, and uh, it's on his website. So it's he's he's, he's been a, a a great he's been a great friend and a and a huge support and uh, one of encouragement. I I really you know I've, I've Craig's been a, a mentor of mine since I was a little kid since he was his days at Peterson Hunting as the
2: as the editor.
1: And even though you weren't responsible for my relationship with Craig, we've known each other basically since both of us got into the industry about the same time, but you were responsible for getting Craig to go on that hunt with us in in Mozambique. And I want to tell the listeners that Gordy was the guy who put the hunt together. I took six McMillan customers with McMillan rifles, and he said, hey... Why don't we see if Craig wants to go with us? And I said, well, yeah, he's so busy, he won't want to go. And so we were at the Dallas Safari Club. We walked over. Um, Gordy says, hey, hey, Craig, we're going to Mozambique. Um, we're going to hunt with Mark Haldane. And, and uh, Craig says, oh, hey, that's cool. I, I, I love hunting with Mark. He said, well, you want to go with us? And he thought about three seconds. He says, sure. And that was all it took, which I thought was the coolest thing. You know, Craig is like um, Colonel Barron's not what you would expect at all. If you'd heard a biography of him, you'd have some sort of um, concept of, uh, you know, this real famous uh, guy who writes books and TV shows, but he's about as down to earth as it, it comes. He's got a tremendous wit. He is funny. He's great to have around the campfire at the end of a day of hunting. Just one of the the best guys you could ever go on a hunt with. So I'm telling everybody out there, if you ever get an opportunity to to hunt with Craig Boddington, do it. He's He doesn't come off as the know-it-all and, and the professional around the camp. He won't volunteer any information unless you ask him and then and he's more than happy to help out with anything he can. But he's just there to enjoy the hunting, and and it it was a really cool experience for me.
4: Oh, yeah. I agree with you 100%, Kelly. Uh, Craig, when I I first met Craig years ago, when I was just out of college, I was so nervous walking up to him with a copy of Safari Rifles and asked him to sign it. I remember just more or less shaking, (laughs) I'll I'll admit (laughs) But, yeah, you're right. He is just just low-key and so much fun in camp, and he's just, like you say, great with everybody. He's a true pleasure. Very knowledgeable, but you, you wouldn't know it unless you really asked him, but he is uh, he's first class. I, I totally agree with what you said.
0: All right, Gordy, here comes a radio blush, so get ready. I'm going to read just a small portion of his testimonial. He writes, Gordy is one of the good guys, honest, self-deprecating, and given to the shame. Excuse me, not given to the shameless self-promotion that, in this era of mass communication without accountability, turns inexperienced wannabes into self-proclaimed gurus. So he actually says, "You're not one of those guys. You're one of the good guys, honest and self-deprecating." So uh, I kind of like that, and I, I like the picture that went along with it. So good job, and I can't wait to actually read this. And not just look at the pictures. <laughs>
4: yeah, thank, thank you, Zeb. I was, I was uh, amazed, and um, oh, I'm, I'm I'm short on words to say what I, what I, what I when I received that from Craig. I asked him for two or three lines, and I received that, and I just was I was in shock, and I was truly humbled by it. So I'm extremely appreciative of of what he did and his words, of course.
1: Well, I agree with every word you wrote, and, and you know I've known you long enough to know that uh, he knows you well. I know you well. Any of your clients would testify to that. I'm absolutely certain. Okay, <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Enough about enough about that. Let's let's get <laughs> okay. onto some some real business. Um, so, you have certain areas that you service. Uh, you mentioned Argentina. Talk about the types of of hunts and what you do for your clients that book you to go to Argentina.
4: Okay, uh, Argentina is really popular. I, I would say it's almost half of my business, and it's primarily wing shooting and, and the high volume dove shooting in Cordoba is the is the big attraction. So, we we work with some really great lodges. You know, the lodges in, in Cordoba are first class. Uh, the the food is gourmet, and the shooting is is unmatched. It's it's truly amazing. So, and that's it's. it's Primarily doves. There's a little bit of pigeons, some produce a little bit here and there, uh, but really it's all pigeons. So that's a, that's a big part of our business. The Colonel hosts a lot of groups in uh, January, February in Cordoba. And then also we do, uh, this is duck season right now, so I've, I've got groups heading heading to Argentina uh, this week for duck and dove combinations, also with produce. And earlier in the year, March, April, we we sell and, and represent uh, outfitters in Patagonia, the southern part of Argentina, really, really beautiful country. And there, uh, our our folks hunt uh, red stag, California quail, believe it or not, and along with uh, really superb um, trout fishing in, in blue ribbon streams. You know, just just really superb trips in, in Patagonia. And so, yeah, we're busy with with Argentina almost year. I'd say year round. I've got groups, you know, back that go in in November for for dove shooting. But uh, but the spring, our springtime, uh, starting in really late May, June through uh, early August, we we do quite a bit of combination hunt, uh, combination trips with with ducks, doves, and, and perdice.
1: Can you uh, give us a little description of uh, just say a guy wants to go down and, and do one of those high volume dove hunts? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of give us a rundown on on exactly what that looks like, what they can expect. Uh, talk about you know how you help them get their their gun permits and, and get everything that they need to, so that there's virtually no hassles in, involved.
4: Okay, well, uh, you know. Uh, the, typically, the, the dove shoots in Cordoba are going to be three- or four-day shoots. So if somebody calls me up, they're interested, what I'll do is I'll, I'll ask them, since it's year-round shooting, I'll ask them their, their preferred time of year to go, uh, the amount of people going with them. Uh, you know, some lodges work can, can book taking groups exclusively for six people. Some require ten or more. So I'll find out, you know, what their expectations are, how many folks are traveling with them, uh, non-hunters, you know, hunters, that sort of thing. Then I'll once they give me dates, I get everything secured with the outfitter, and from there we we look at air. You know, I help with air air travel. I work with an excellent uh, Marilyn Mills in Louisiana. She helps me uh, daily for the past ten years with my with air travel. We 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 look at schedules. So I, I look at schedules before anything's booked, just to make sure the entry and you know the the. Entry into the country and departing is is where it needs to be because to me, a great trip involves smooth travel. So, I have a, I have a look at that, and and then from that point I I Q and A on a lot of things. Uh, they're going to ask questions. That, you know, I set up tours, hotels in Buenos Aires. You know, tango shows, whatever they want to do. Often often uh, groups will will you know especially couples will make side trips out to Mendoza, to wine country. So I work out all the, you know I've got great partners throughout Argentina handle everything and I'm one-on-one with 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 the clients every step of the way and and with guns Argentina's been difficult in the past few years with guns it's it's we we do most of most of the folks will rent guns at the lodges that's the large majority these days but some that that want to bring their own guns they can and I help them through the the gun process as well so you know from start to finish um, I'll take care of everything I oversee you know, all aspects, make sure everything's, you know, in line and how it needs to be. So when they get off that plane in Buenos Aires, there's somebody there with a sign with their name on it, my logo. And from there, it's it's very smooth all the way through till they get back
0: home.
1: Now, as you said earlier, you work with what you consider partners. There are only certain people that you'll book with. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's Argentina or Mozambique or South Africa. Uh, I know this personally, but I want you to explain to the uh, listeners how it is that you determine who you're going to choose as your partners and who you're going to send clients to. Because I think it's really important.
4: Yeah, I. You know, I was, I was recently I was talking to some. It's like being in a triangle, and the longer you're in it, the higher you go up in the world of. Of the outfitter seems to get smaller, and we're all you start to recognize who's really good in the business. So I think time in the business. Uh, I also spend a lot of time traveling to these destinations all over the world to for site checking. But you know, but beforehand I've got a good idea what I'm who I'm going to meet, and I've got plenty of reference and uh, you know folks with track records. So I know you know my shots at it. At, at, these outfitters and, and is, is you know, trips abroad are is time well spent. And so I go and I meet, I meet them at conventions and there's just an awful there's a lot of communication. That's easy these days with, with all the technology. And then you know, some it's just I will set up hunters and shooters with different operators just based on the location, specialties, the species of game, where I think they'll fit best. And the, the advantage with me is that I'm not tied to one particular area or outfitter. I've got a, a tremendous amount of flexibility. so I can really custom fit somebody's trip to, you know, to fit what they want to do. So you know I, I work with some really good people, but they all differ, and I just feel out you know the client, the hunter. And see what they want to do, and uh, you yes. know some go with their family, some with their you know, some go on their own, some it's a guys trip, and so it just it just depends. So there's there's different uh, aspects of it that I got to look at.
1: I think you downplayed the part that I think is important. Uh, I think the fact that you have actually go to these places and spend time with them. I know you you did six weeks one one year, didn't you? Actually, guiding for one of the outfitters that you used. You just wanted to make sure that everything that you talked about was as a, exactly the way it, it happens. I know when you sit down with a an outfitter at the Dallas Safari Club or SCI, and you're seriously talking about what they have to offer and what they can do. for for you. They're on their best behavior. They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. They're going to make sure that they convince you that they've got everything that you want, but you really don't know until you get down there and spend some time with them whether that's true or not, Um, which leads to my next question. I asked this of you a a long time ago, and I loved your answer. Um, Why does a guy need you? Why did they just need need another rung in the ladder? When, you know, like I said, if they if they took the time to go to Dallas Safari Club or SCI, they could sit down with most of these outfitters and and book their trip themselves. Why why does it do them uh, a service to come to you?
4: Well, one, it doesn't cost them any more. Straight up, the the, the outfitters. You know, on that end of on that end of business, there's no savings. The savings can be for the hunter and client working with me because I can find them, you know, the best valued hunt they're looking for. But I, I know these people. I've been in the business 25 years. Uh, I'm, you know, they're my clientele, my clients and friends. are in the U.S. We, I'm on the phone all day long. I sit in front of three screens, answering emails, answering calls. I'm easy to talk to but i you know areas change and and staffs change and there's areas that i used 5 years ago that i don't there's outfitters i used 5 years ago that i don't use anymore because of perhaps regulations or you know game game populations have shifted or you know a multitude of reasons so i'm i'm the one with with a lot of flexibility and i'm looking out you know for the one my outfitters i want to be a great partner to them but i really want to take care of my clients and so i want them year after year to book trips with me, allow me to take care of them, tell their friends and uh so you know I in you know, at a convention like you said Kelly everybody's everybody's the best. You're just going to get everybody's there to sell, they've got 3-day, 4-day window to sell all they can. And with me, I'm, I'm in this year round and we can explore options, uh, you know, constantly. And, and I do travel. Like, see, tomorrow morning I get on a plane at five o'clock and fly to Albuquerque and I'm going to be there for two days to look at some new, some new elk property and come home. I'll be home at midnight the, on Thursday. And, you know, one time I, I went to Namibia for three days and came home to site check and look over some country because I was looking to, To work with these folks and i've got folks there right now having a fantastic safari it was the the outfitter was shocked that i flew all the way to africa from austin texas for three nights it took me longer to get there than i was actually there but i had to do it so
1: well i can attest to that it's a long trip hey gordy i really want to thank you for being on the show we're out of time now um i really enjoyed um reading the book that that was terrific and i'm so thankful that you consider me a friend, that you sent me the book. I'm, it, it really means a lot to me.
4: Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate you, and thanks for having me on your show.
1: Uh, great show. Uh, once again, we've come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Remember, we'll be here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Zeb, you want to close us out today? Sure. Uh, You know, like you always say,
0: um, get out there, enjoy this great country of ours, Uh, do some shooting, do some archery, uh, take walks with your kids, just really enjoy this
1: weather that we have. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.